The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your hosts Jason Galvin and Renee Esri. Today we have in studio Marsha Higgins, curator of the museum. Renee, can you go ahead and kick us off? Thank you for coming today, Marsha. appreciate having you in here. And pretty excited to uh, have a podcast about women in the museum. So, you know, it, as a woman veteran, um, I really am interested in a lot of the older stories that show the women that paved the way for me to have a great time in the military. So why don't you uh, start us off with just telling us a couple of, uh, you know, our World War II uh, stories that we have for some of the women here in the museum. Well, here at the museum, we are really blessed to have uh, quite a number of uh, women veterans represented. Um, We have some really interesting and rare uh, uniforms. Uh, For instance, uh, we have on loan to us from the Warren County Historical Society uh, the uniform and uh, photos and letters from Elsa Lutz. Um, she She was in the Women's Army Corps. Uh, and served in Europe. Uh, she tended the wounded uh, that were coming back from the Battle of the Bulge. Um, her uniform and her, her story and her photos were kind of neglected and uh, uh, up in the attic of uh, uh, a man. They were, they were cleaning out a grandmother's uh, house after her death and found Great Aunt Elsa's stuff up in, in the attic, and no one knew anything about her. And uh, so we were able to do a little research and uh, found out uh, that she uh, was a nurse, uh, went to Europe. We have letters that she wrote home uh, to her family talking about how they were finally going to get to um, take a trip to Paris. I guess it was, you know, when the war had ended um, and said that they were going to be accompanied. Don't worry, Mom, we're we're going to be accompanied by a couple of really nice officers. And I, I, I really wish I could have read between the lines of, of that letter. I thought there <laughs> might have been a lot more going on than meets the eye. We also have her footlocker, a wooden footlocker with uh, her name 
uh, and rank still uh, stenciled on it. Um, and it, boy, it looks like it might have floated home in the ocean. It's in such bad shape. Um, but some of those kinds of artifacts, uh, the ones that really aren't in great shape, sometimes they're the most dear to me because they really show that they belong to someone real and that uh, it, it, it experienced life. Um, so um, we're really we're really blessed to have that. Another World War One or World War Two uniform we have is uh, the white uh, dress uniform of Phyllis Wester. She said she joined the Navy because she wanted to marry a sailor, and she did. She married uh, Dennis Wester. He uh, served on a destroyer uh, in uh, World War Two, and they were married uh, in January of 1945. Um, so we have her uh, beautifully preserved uh, uniform, white uniform here on display, and uh, as well as a picture of her and her sailor sailor husband. Um, we also have another uniform that's not very uh, impressive at all. Um, it was uh, donated by the family of Ruth Dole Thimming, and she was in the uh, Women's Marine Corps, which I had never known about. Yeah, me neither. Um, they were in existence for just a very short time from 1942 to 1946. And their branding um, and the way they uh, presented themselves to the women of America was become a Marine and free a, a Marine to fight. So in other words, you come be a Marine and do all this other stuff so that the rest of the boys can go over there and fight. Um, and it's just a, it's just a, a plain old green fatigue shirt um and yet she wore that to uh you know to work they these women did a lot of secretarial duties but they also did a lot of um aircraft maintenance and um uh riveting and 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 repair work and all sorts of things um they were only in existence like i said until 1946 and then it was disbanded and then they weren't allowed back in the marines um until until much later um, one of the things that's really interesting is as we as we discover uh, the things that these women did, we find that um, you know as 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 happened all over America during the war, women were finding out that they could really be very competent in things other than sewing and ironing and taking care of children and cooking. Um, you know the uh, iconic photo of Rosie the Riveter. Um, they could do all sorts of things. Uh, they still weren't ready to go into combat. They weren't ready to, to send them into combat, but they did so much uh, combat support, and they were uh, in danger. They were in harm's way, whether people liked to admit it or not. Some of the nurses uh, were in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Um, another another nurse uh, that we have the artifacts from is um, Jeanette Zelinas Huff. She was uh, in the women's uh, the. I'm sorry, the Army Nurse Corps, um, she, uh, she was disqualified from overseas duty because she had really poor eyesight. So she served as a nurse um, and was assigned to a lot of Army uh, Air Corps bases uh, on the West Coast. Um, she ran a ward. She was a charge nurse. Um, what's very interesting about uh, her story is she kept a very, very full and detailed scrapbook from her time in the uh, in the army, and it's full of uh, photographs and uh, invitations and cards and ribbons, just anything you can think of. 
I think she was um, quite the socialite. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that's really interesting um, about her uh, artifacts that she left us back in the back in the forties, it was really popular to go to these uh, supper clubs, and you would go to these kind of fancy restaurants, and there was always someone walking around taking pictures, and they would take a photograph, and then they would give it to you, probably you know, and one at a fee. Um, but they would give it to you in a real fancy little little folder that also uh, advertised the, the the restaurant or supper club that they were in. Well, Jeanette's uh, scrapbook probably had over a dozen of them, and I swear she was with a different officer in every single <laughs> photo. Um, she uh, also uh, we have a picture of her in our um, in the museum. She also organized a little trip to Hollywood while she was on the West Coast, a little trip for the rest of her nurses. They went to 20th Century Fox Studios, and they were able to um, actually sit in on um, the filming of a scene from a 20th Century Fox movie called Something for the Boys, starring Carmen Miranda. And we have a picture of her in the museum uh, standing next to Carmen Carmen Miranda, she didn't have her fruity tooty hat on, uh, and I mentioned that to Jeanette's daughter Dot, and she said that her mother told her that Carmen said to her when they asked why did, wasn't she wearing the hat, she goes, "Why does everybody think I wear that hat all the time?" <laughs> <laughs> of course, that was you know kind of kind of her brand as well. Um, we have her uniform, which is a um, sand uh, silk. Uh, uniform. We have a picture of her in the uniform, and then we actually have this very rare uniform on display. She met her husband, as many of these women did, met their husbands while they were in the service. She actually met her husband after the war uh, when they were stationed in the same place. He was uh, he was a timber wolf, which was he was a sharpshooter, and he was uh, in Europe, in Belgium, uh, and in Germany. Uh, and he used to tease his wife in front of the kids and say. Yeah, your mom spent the uh, spent the war hobnobbing with officers and uh, movie stars in sunny California. I spent the war in the mud in Belgium, freezing my butt off. <laughs> so um, we uh, we're really really privileged to have to have those uh, those artifacts from her. You know, I look at um, you know, especially Elsa Lutz. You know, when you said um, you know that she. Uh, she was caring for those guys that came back from the Battle of the Bulge. You know, when we talk a lot about PTSD and stuff, we're usually thinking of the men, the soldiers that were in, you know, in the fight and stuff. But imagine what these women, most of them were nurses. Imagine the things that they saw, you know, and, uh, you know, still came home and many of them had families and, and, you know, moved on, moved on with their lives as well. You know, so, um, I really respect that, you know, that what they had to go through. That's a good point. And they did, um, and they did all that nursing most likely under the, the harshest conditions with the least amount of, uh, tools at their mm-hmm. disposal. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're just as heroic that there's just as much, uh, heroism in, in, in that as, is in the people they were taking care of. You know, it was, it was a whole new concept to have women in the military at that time and uh, a lifestyle change from what they were used to doing. And so 
I imagine there was some complexity with that, you know, leaving kind of what they normally did day to day to this new venture and this new process. And then, uh, you know, having to deal with, with all the different nuances that came with, learning learning a new trade or learning different things. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Marsha, if, if you had any experience hearing from any family members about how that transition affected them at all? Well, you know, we have um, we have a story here uh, in the museum uh, of Inez uh, Satterfield uh, Pinnell, and she was one of the very first to um, have enlisted in the WACs. She mentions that um, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, she remembers so clearly um, saying to herself, I wish I was a boy. Why couldn't I have been born a boy so I could go fight? And it never occurred to her that a year or two later they would actually let women enter the military. But one of the things that she said in her story is that so many of the women, uh, they were looking, looking for adventure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got a lot more than they bargained for. Um, and at that time, I don't think, uh, like you mentioned, I don't think they realized uh, exactly what kind of training they needed to give these women. Um, you could teach them to uh, do air maintenance on a tank, I guess, or you could teach them to do their secretarial work, or they already maybe knew how to be nurses, but they didn't realize that they had to teach them how to deal with the horrors of war. Right. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, that was, there was a huge learning curve there. And I think that, you know, it to, even to the present day, I'm not real sure it's addressed quite properly as we see in the stories of some of our uh, more recent uh, veterans. One of uh, my favorite stories um, is from a woman who is not even an American citizen. She's not exactly an American veteran. Um, her name was Odette Clotilde Georgette Bierre Shainer. She was born in Dijon, France, and she was an agent for the French Resistance. Um, we had the great privilege of actually meeting her before her death uh, uh, a year and a half ago. Um, she wrote out her memoirs on 60 loose-leaf pages, um, in English, thank goodness, but uh, it took a long time to transcribe them. Beautiful handwriting, though. Yeah, but I didn't want to miss a word. This, If you read, uh, listeners, if, if you have time to read one story of a woman veteran, uh, remember this name, Odette Bier Shainer. Look her up on our website and read this story. Uh, she has almost total recall for what it was like to be in France when the Germans came. Um, she uh, she writes, and I, I wrote it down word for word. It's it's um, it's beautifully written, beautifully written. Um, she said at the very beginning, she says most people in France enjoyed a carefree life, um, but uh, you know Germany was getting stronger and stronger and. Uh, We didn't realize what was going to happen. She said, uh, I remember the day so clearly uh, when when the war started. She said, I'll I'll never forget the day we left, leaving everything behind, um, heading south on the last train out of town. 
Um, she talks about that journey, about how they, they ended up, after the occupation, coming back to their home in, in Dijon, France. And uh, she worked for the French Resistance. She talks about having maps hidden in her armoire, about having communiques sewn into the lining of her coat when she went to uh, the southern sector. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. She writes about uh, the day when the Germans were leaving, when it was uh, obvious that uh, the Americans were coming. The Germans were leaving um, her town, and they were blowing up everything they could on the way out. And she was had been at the office and was trying to get home. And she was listening to the explosions and trying to figure out what they had just blown up so that she could find another bridge or another street where she could get home. Uh, the, the, the happy ending to this story, which is, which is you know, again, fascinating, is um, while she was in France, she met a, uh, a young American GI. His name was Elmer Shainer. She spoke no English, and he spoke no French. But as they say, you know, love conquers all. <laughs> um, they, uh, they were married, actually, at the end of the war in Europe, he was getting ready to get on a boat. They were going to send him to the South Pacific. But uh, right before he was ready to be deployed there, the, the war in, uh, against Japan ended. Um, but she was a war bride. They came over on a boat. She, still, she spoke no English. They settled in St. Louis. Um, and her uh, her husband Elmer uh, was he was a had a career with he was career army, um, and he was with the Corps of Engineers and he um, uh, he flew helicopters, and he was actually knighted by Queen Juliana of the Netherlands for a heroic uh, rescue that he and Prince Rupert of the Netherlands, who was also a helicopter pilot, they um, there was a. a a flood, I think a dike broke or something, and there was this this flood, and this was in the early 50s, uh, and they rescued people by lowering ropes uh, down onto the rooftops and oh, wow. taking people to safety, and we actually have his story and a copy of uh, his knighthood from Queen Juliana of uh, the Netherlands, so it's a, a wonderful story, um, and like I said, I, I urge you to read it because it's very inspiring. But it didn't really end there because they got married and had a son and then went on a trip. They What happened is is because he was in the military all the time, uh, they were able, they lived all over the country, or all, all over the world, actually. They lived all over the world. And they went back to France very often to visit her family because her family was still in Dijon. And while they were there very often, um, as a child, their son Bob uh, met and ended up falling in love with uh, a woman uh, who lived right there in his mother's hometown. Full circle. And they were <laughs> married. In fact, they were married and they spent their honeymoon in the same hotel in uh, France that his mother and father had stayed in. And they live uh, here in the O'Fallon area now. That's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's one of our one of our favorite stories. Military does bring people together, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It sure does. Uh, we have another uh, love story of uh, uh, two 
uh, people in the military. Uh, Rita Clark, she was a WREN, which I had never heard of. It's W-R-N, and it stands for Women's Royal Navy Service. Uh, so she was she was British, and she joined uh, the uh, the Wrens, and she worked at Bletchley Park, which you might be familiar with from the movie The Enigma Machine. Um, she was sworn to secrecy and never even told her story until the late late sixties. Um, but she uh, was uh, one of the people. They were called the Watchkeepers, and her job was to decode the Germans. Uh, uh, messages using uh, once they cracked the Enigma code. Um, we have a little pin uh, that, that uh, she wore that says Bletchley Park. Um, and she met uh, a man, uh, a pilot, Fran Clark, Francis Clark. He was uh, an American GI pilot and uh, bears a striking resemblance to Robert Mitchum. We've got some, we've got some pictures. A lot of you are too, too young to know Robert Mitchum, but um, Anyone who knows, uh, you know, the, the old uh, 1940s movies, uh, I think he's a spitting image of him. Um, but they uh, they met and fell in love, and she tells the story that um, uh, they they he used to come to the house to his par- her parents' house for uh, dinner quite often. And one day, one night, when he had been there for dinner, there was a bombing raid. Uh, in London, and so there they were down in the cellar with the bombs exploding, and that's when he decides to look at her father and ask him for permission to marry his daughter while they were in the (laughs) cellar during a bombing. (laughs) Got to take your chances while you've got them, right? (laughs) Your opportunities. So we have pictures of them, and we have both of their stories uh, in our museum. Those Um, are some great uh, World War II era stories. I, I those women, what they had to go through and what they did, you know, I mean, it's different with what my era, what we went through, you know, we kind of grew up in the world, you know, they grew up in a very different world. They were very protected, you know, they didn't see a lot of the things that, you know, we see on TV now, you know, we can, you know, we're a little bit more um, accustomed to stuff, but um, I really respect those women and and what they did for us. Definitely. They were trailblazers for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we have uh, the Korean War time. Yeah, we just have we just have one uh, female veteran from the Korean War that uh, has come forward. You know, we don't really uh, we don't really go out seeking uh, uh, stories our 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 veterans. We uh, we rely just on people that bring their families uh, their families artifacts and stories to us, and little by little, it has. Uh, turned out that we can tell the story of all the wars by what walks in the door. Um, but uh, Betty Washburn Heller, uh, she was in the Women's Army Corps just in, uh, you know, just a few years after the, uh, the end of World War II. Um, and she, she joined, uh, she, was, she lived on a farm. Uh, she joined because she wanted to see the world and she wanted to become a nurse. Um, and she was stationed uh, very quickly, uh, sent over uh, to... Uh, the Korean War. Um, she was in a Tokyo hospital. The uh, the really bad cases were were shipped uh, is immediately to to Tokyo, and they uh, and they took care of them there. They she said very often um, she was on call, uh, and you know there were only two nurses, and they were just on call every twenty four hours. That's all they did. 
um, she t- she told the story that um, in Tokyo earthquakes were very very common, and in the she woke up uh, on her first night she woke up to find that there had been an earthquake and it had shaken her bed all the way to um, the front of the door and she couldn't even open her bedroom door. <laughs> Um, sadly, she wasn't able to actually complete her um, her RN degree, um, but she came back home and married a, a, a man there in uh, in mid Missouri, in the Midwest, and um, worked as a practical nurse and a medical technician most of her life. Um, during the Vietnam era, we had uh, we have a couple of uh, a couple of women represented. Uh, one of them is uh, Major uh, Marcia. Keeper Fisher, um, she had a very long Army career. She she entered the ROTC uh, in college up at um, uh, Truman College, and uh, she began. She was a second second lieutenant, and retired as a major. She was uh, an MP, and then she has worked in. Uh, that really led her to the rest of her career because she had a long career as um, in Highway Patrol, um, Police Department. She uh, settled in Alaska and was with the Alaskan Highway Patrol for many, many years. Well, that's really interesting. One of one of my favorite artifacts that she brought in, we actually have two of her uniforms uh, on display. One of them is, is the basic um, uh, Class A dress green uniform. But the other one that we have is kind of interesting. It's the first prototype of a polyester pantsuit that the Army was trying to figure out if they would 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 make that the dress uniform, um, and she she tells the story that they wore it for a little while, and then they made some uh, suggestions about where the braid should be, and you know uh, she did she said that the prototype that she had was never actually adopted, but it did lead to finally um, uh, you know having having pants being part of a uniform for for the women. Um, the other thing I think is kind of interesting is. Um, uh, even now, I believe a woman's dress uniform includes a black leather purse. Is that mm-hmm. so? Even even still, there's um, uh, a, a purse is involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that we have, I swear, weigh, weighs twenty five pounds empty. Um, so I maybe they just figured it was kind of a, a, could be also be a weapon. It Absolutely. looks very similar to the ones that we were issued in the Air Force. So times haven't changed all that yeah. much. Yeah, and. I have no clue whatever happened to that purse. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever need one, um, I can tell you where we they can get one. They weren't real attractive in the 80s, let's say that, because I still look like the ones they had back then. Um, the um, One of the other things that are this kind of interesting um, is, uh, you know, in present day, uh, we have the story and the artifacts of Lieutenant Colonel Ruth Hunter Reese. Uh, she was in... Uh, from the from the Air Force, uh, again uh, she met her she met her husband while in the service. The only problem is is she outranks him. Uh, her husband Roger Reese is a major. He was a pilot uh, and uh, flew the the big big planes, the Caribou and I think the C forty seven. I'm not up on my aircraft, but. Um, uh, what's interesting about her is she worked in the private sector for, for many years. She's a nurse. She was a medical evac nurse. And uh, back then, when you entered the Air Force, she was 43 years old when she entered, but she entered um, uh, with rank 
uh, of a major because of her 20 years of trauma experience. I don't know if that's the case now. I don't know if they give you automatic rank uh, still. But anyway, um, she um, uh, she served uh, in many, many deployments. And in um, 2007, they asked her once again if she would deploy for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And when they called her, she said... Uh, they, you know, they said, we need a chief nurse in Iraq. Will you come? And she said, well, do you know how old I am? And the, her officer said, yes, ma'am, I know exactly how old you are. You won't be 60 for a few more months. So this woman was almost 60 years old, and yet she answered the call. She went to Iraq. Um, and, uh, you know, again, women of valor. Is this the same uh, lady that um, loved to have her morning coffee? And one day uh, there was an explosion in her coffee, and the thing that she was most upset about was that uh, yes. her coffee spilled. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, yeah. They um, uh, they had a, there was a little there was a little cafe uh, there on the base, and that was that was the biggest uh, draw. Um, and they were not even though she had been in a lot of sticky situations. Even before she was in the military, when she worked as a medical evac nurse in the private sector, she very often had to go into rather dangerous locations, um, maybe in South America, uh, and sometimes had to uh, bribe airport airport officials to be able to uh, to take off again with their patient. Uh, she was actually arrested a couple of times trying to uh, trying to get uh, patients out of out of a foreign country. And so she wasn't um, uh, a stranger to that kind of uh, that kind of situation, but she did say that she had never even touched a gun. Uh, and before she was deployed, she had to actually learn to shoot a gun. Um, so that was very, you know, a lot of these women, uh, even though they they did go to be in combat, and you know, we had said how how they were in harm's way. Um, they weren't. They didn't go there. They didn't go there to fight. They went there to help, and so that's mainly a lot of times. You know, that was why they were in harm's way was because they were they were trying trying to help, but not to fight. Um, and uh, many of these women, especially in present day, they they've had uh, at least a little bit of help dealing with with their their experiences and um uh one you know that we're talking about has a um uh has a support uh a support dog uh that is you know you know they're very successful and you know in having having uh having them maybe help them through some some rough times uh speaking of rough times we also have uh the story in the uniform of um, Angie Voidis Peacock um, who served in Iraq. Um, she was in Baghdad, and uh, she was a communications specialist and uh, s- suffered terribly from uh, being, you know, in harm's way. Um, they, uh, they went out uh, on convoys, uh, you know, three, time, three times a week for six months and never knew if they were going to come back. Um, they didn't have enough body armor. And this is not, you know, we're not talking about Battle of the Bulge with the poor guys that didn't have boots. I mean, this is modern day. 
why were these people over there and not not protected? Um, but she said, you know, they, they, they had 12 pieces of body armor for 40 people. And so each time you got ready to go on a convoy, you had to pick, well, let, where, where do you want to put it? you want it in the front or the back? Where do you think you're going to get shot today? That's the kind of thing that really uh, wears on a person. And um, if, you, um, if you read her, her story, she has an awful lot to say about how uh, the Army and the military treat people who admit that they have uh, disorders. Um, she said, you know, she made the mistake of, of speaking up, and the next day she was out of the Army. She didn't want to leave the Army. She wanted to keep her, she wanted to stay in, but she needed a little help. That's a, you know, that, that's still a, that, that's a big problem. Absolutely. With a lot of, with a lot of our, uh, our veterans. Yeah, yeah, we had that, um, when we talked with the Blue Star Moms, you know, uh, the Gateway Blue Star Moms chapter, when we did a podcast with them, and we talked a lot about the lack of support, you know, and, you know, with all the events that's going on in our country right now, you know, mental health is something we can't afford to just ignore, uh, these issues, you know, and, and especially in the military, what they're doing, they're going to have issues and we've got to find a way to help them out, not kick them out, but help them out because we're losing a lot of good people. Yes, we are. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten, I've got, I was able to meet uh, Angie and she's a wonderful lady. She's gone through a lot and now she's helping other people, um, you know, walk through and work through those, those issues. Um, you mentioned the support dog. I mean, that's kind of the lifeline for someone that has, uh, PTSD or that has, uh, you know, been, you know, damaged or, or hurt in a non-physical way while they've been serving. And so that lifeline is, is everything to them. And, um, now she's giving back, she's, she's given back for a long time, but she's giving back, um, a lot to help other people, not just women, but also men, uh, and making it uh, more normal to seek help and not to be, uh, not to just use medication, but to use alternative methods to um, be able to cope. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of, uh, you know, doctors, you know, that's all they know to do is prescribe drugs, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, if you're a hammer, all problems look like a nail and, you know, it's not always what's it's not always what's needed but it's a lot more complicated to to really delve into uh, the reason behind a person's distress and to really try to uh, you know figure out you know a way you know way a way out for them um, I, I I don't I, I don't know I'm not very confident that it's going to get a whole lot better I sure hope it does I kind of feel like what we do here at the museum um, in some cases helps enormously. We've had people, you know, come to us and, and, and say that, uh, you know, that it was a place of healing and that was our, uh, one, of our, one of our biggest goals was, you know, to have this be a safe place for, for veterans and, and to also um, give the families the opportunity to honor uh, the veterans in their family. Um, we were laughing just the other night about um, 
how many more things we can display in our museum, which we are uh, fast outgrowing. And uh, the thing is, is that it means so much to these families uh, to to come in and go back to the World War II gallery and, and, and see their, their grandfather's photo and read his story. It just means too much of them for us to ever take it down and make way for something else. So... Um, We'll keep crowding in as many things as we can until uh, until we can't do it anymore. We're quickly approaching a hundred years worth of history in the museum. More than a hundred years, yes. but more than a hundred years. But you know, from World War II till now, speaking about that, we're approaching a hundred years of history. Mm-hmm. And if you think back of the evolution from World War II till now of women in the military and what that looks like now compared to what it looked like when they first uh, started serving. Um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of growth, but there's still a lot of growth to happen, you know. And um, Renee, you served in the military, uh, in the Air Force. Can you speak to a little bit of the evolution that you've seen since the time that you served until kind of now, a little bit, just a little bit? You know, when I was in um, in the early 80s uh, and then the mid-80s, you know, Top Gun came out, you know, the movie Top Gun and Everybody wanted to join the Air Force and be a fighter pilot, um, unless you were a woman, you know, and it was a big deal um, when I was in, um, you know, we kept tabs, you know, there was a woman pilot that was, uh, you know, she was a training pilot. She flew the T-38 and trained some of the fighter pilots and stuff. Um, That's all gone now. So even just in my lifetime, women now can can be a fighter pilot in combat, you know. Um, so something that, you know, when I was in the military and growing up and we would read the articles and stuff about these women and, and uh, you know, wanting to be fighter pilots, I always, you know, kind of admired them because all I could do in a plane was throw up. So it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't good at it. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's women that are built for that and can do that uh, just as well, if not better than, than a man. Um, you know, so... Actually, along those lines, there's two other women I'd like to mention in the museum that are not veterans. Um, One is a very young lady named Ella, and another is an artist named Linda Wilmes. So tell me why those two women are kind of important to me uh, here in the museum, what what we were able to do with some money that Ella uh, made for us and what Linda did for us to highlight women in the military? Well, um, Ella Mateja is a very uh, special young lady. She is now 15 years old. Um, When she was seven, I guess, seven years old, she decided she wanted to raise some money for the veterans and have uh, a lemonade stand. Her father, uh, her grandfather was uh, in the military, and uh, she considered him her hero so with, uh, with, his, uh, with that goal in mind, she has had this little lemonade stand that has grown and grown and grown. Um, she holds her lemonade stands every year and chooses three or four veterans organizations to donate the money to. Um, she's raised over $125,000 in the eight years year she's been doing this. Um, she picked the St. Charles County Veterans Museum a couple of years ago, and um, we 
earmarked the the money that she raised for a uh, a painting uh, by local artist Linda Wilmoth, who had painted the mural that we have called The Five Wars, which was one that Ralph Borelli had commissioned before we even had the building. Um, and we were able to, uh, to, to hang it uh, finally in the museum. And so we decided we would commission another one from Linda in honor of our first year anniversary, uh, which was April 12th uh, in the year of COVID. So we didn't. We weren't able to dedicate it until the following, until the summer, because we were under quarantine. But anyway, we commissioned Linda Wilmus to uh, to do another painting for us, and on it are the uh, pictures of all sorts of women who have served in the military, from Dolly Madison to Molly Pitcher uh, from the uh, Revolutionary War, and we have wax and waves and wasps and. A submar- someone sub- uh, on a submarine looking through a periscope. And it's just, it's beautiful. Um, and we owe that to uh, the uh, contributions of Ella and the talent of Linda Wilmus, who uh, is a, a very valued member of our team. She has done uh, other artistic projects for us through uh, through the years. She always helps us with our Christmas display and has a some kind of uh, painting to do for that. So she's a very valued member of the team. A lot of rich history located here at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Uh, you're going to see a lot of, uh, like like Marcia said, a lot of interesting and intricate uh, displays of women serving in the military. And uh, I am so grateful that we that our county has this museum to highlight uh, these women that we talked about tonight. Is there anything else, Marsha, that you want to talk to the listeners about as the curator of the museum or what might be important when they visit to maybe seek out and look at? Well, I think that the one thing that I always mention at the very beginning of uh, any tour that I give is if you come to the museum, uh, you will see some really cool stuff. But if you come to the museum just to look at stuff, you're missing the point. It's always been our mission to preserve the memories and the stories of the veterans. And we use the artifacts in a way that will help to tell their story. So come prepared to not only look at stuff, but to pick up these binders and and read the stories or to uh, save the QR codes so that you can go home and read every story. We've got over 300 stories now on our website. And there is something epic about every single one of them. Um, I'm really proud of all of the cool stuff that I get to display and design how to put it in here and and, uh, and choose what, what is going to be displayed. But I'm more proud of the way we are preserving the stories of the veterans. Absolutely, and thank you so much for your work on that and uh, for keeping these stories alive. And Ralph said, as, as long as we keep the stories alive, we keep the people's memories alive and the people with us. So I think that's an excellent way to sign off uh, tonight. Uh, Renee, do you have anything else before we do sign off? No, just uh, like Marcia said, go on our website, uh, org. 
Uh, you can go to the stories tab. You can uh, read any of the stories. Uh, they're very well put in there by ERA. Um, and then you can come by here. And I always say that the museum, this is the eye candy. Uh, the real museum is on the website. So uh, we'd love to have you on there and and uh, just appreciate everyone that comes by to, to honor these veterans. All right. We're going to go ahead and sign off on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us for an upcoming episode featuring Jim David from the Veterans Affairs Office in St. Charles County. The office is located in O'Fallon City Hall and is staffed by volunteers Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. The volunteers are ready to assist you with your veterans' assistance needs. Jim will outline what assistance the Veterans Office can provide and how to utilize their expertise.